This is an extremely warm church, but still, have you ever noticed the tension when that greeting time comes? Sometimes it's the last thing you want to do is stand up and greet somebody. Uh, the doors have a song, people are strange, and, and that really resonates. When you feel strange, people just become strange and ugly and weird, and you just want to stay in your place. And the reality is, is that we have inner hostilities that make it hard for us to connect with others. We see them as others, and I'm me. You're dangerous, I'm safe, let me stay in my, in my little space here. So we're all aware of this. The reality is that we all have these inner hostilities, don't we? That's the truth. It becomes expressly evident when we discuss things like gender and politics. You turn on the news, you have a cup of coffee and begin a, a polite conversation, but it, it becomes something more tense. It's hostility building. There's a book actually I'm reading this year. It's been one of the most profound books I've read in the last few years, and it's called Reaching Out. I'm going to borrow heavily from this book today. But it's called Reaching Out, and in it, the author describes this transformation that Christians are called to, to go from hostility to hospitality. So we all have this inner hostility. We have to recognize this. that we often try to use our hostilities to change others. If you ever notice that in a political debate, we become hostile, and our goal is to change. Change the other. But when is the last time you've been transformed through hostility? A hostile parent? A hostile teacher? A hostile husband? A hostile wife? That just really, really warms you up and makes you want to see their side, doesn't it? But the Apostle Paul says that our vocation, our very vocation as believers, is to transform hostility into hospitality. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. So we're all called to the ministry. We all have this job, this vocation to transform hostility into hospitality, to reconcile. A definition for hospitality can be like this. It's not merely inviting strangers over to our home, though that's a good thing, right? But it's a fundamental attitude toward our fellow human being, which can be expressed in a variety of ways. So it's a fundamental attitude. It's easy to polarize, but the gospel calls us to transform one another. If anyone could be rightly hostile to strangers, who is it? It's God. A person who saw his own son, innocent son, bludgeoned and killed. And yet his response was, I'm going to give grace. I'm going to give love. I'm going to make a way for these people. In this passage, we see Jesus confront cultural hostilities of his time. The pressures that he would have felt as religious male the most at that time. And he confronts racial, gender, political, and religious pressures, not unlike our culture today. If you'd like to read with me, I'm going to open up to the book of John, John chapter 4. We're going to read 1 through 15. It's Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea 
and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and ask that you, you do a work in our hearts. We've brought before you our confession that we are broken, we're sinners, we're hostile towards you, and towards our neighbor, towards our co-workers, towards our bosses, towards our employees. We're a hostile people, Father. We bring that before you. But we ask that in the midst of the preaching of your word this morning, would you be pleased to come and fellowship with us? Teach us. Enlighten us by your spirit, through your word. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Daryl was a blues musician, and he just got done playing his set at the Silver Dollar Lounge. And he went and sat down in a seat in a white gentleman approached him and he said to him, you know, I really like you all's music. Daryl politely shook his hand and thanked him. The man went on to say, you know, this is the first time I have ever heard a black man play like Jerry Lee Lewis. You could just see Daryl looking down and chuckling. And eventually he pipes up, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned to play like that? And the gentleman's like, I, I don't know. He said, well, he learned the same place I learned. The blues, the boogie-woogie, those piano players. And the man said, no, no, I'm pretty sure Jerry Lee Lewis invented that. I ain't never heard no black man but you play like that. And then he goes on to say this, you know, this is actually the very first time I've ever sat down and talked to a black man. And Daryl is, is dumbstruck. He's about 25 years old, and he's thinking, I've, I've sat with hundreds of, of white men. And he eventually pipes up, now why is it 
How is it that you've never sat down with a black gentleman before? And the man gets quiet, but his buddy starts elbowing him. He says, tell him, tell him, tell him. And he finally said, Daryl, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So imagine Daryl here. He had every right to well up within him this hostility, this hostile attitude. How dare you judge me? How dare you come at me? You're a Ku Klux Klan. Have you ever experienced something like that? Someone who has pegged you and knows who you are before they've even spoken to you? Their hostility is pointed at you before you've even spoken a word? Well, in many ways, this story actually resonates with me, my personal story. See, I'm ethnically ambiguous. So when I go to the Spanish grocery store down the street, people come up and start speaking Spanish to me. Um, I remember as a school teacher at one point, uh, a woman, a kind woman came up afterward and said, I'm so glad that they have Puerto Rican teachers in this school. And I said, well, thank you very much, ma'am. <laughs> I remember being in Morocco, and people would come up to me and start speaking Arabic, assuming that I was Moroccan as well. So we all laugh at this, um, but we all have blind sides. You might be surprised to know that I'm a son of a sharecropper. My father, 78 years old, was born in Mississippi on a sharecropper's ranch. I'm African-American and white. You might call me an undercover brother. <laughs> so you can imagine my surprise when I hear people make racist comments. I remember someone using the N-word at work speaking to me at one point. Sometimes people, even in confidence, they say racist comments. You know those people. And I'm there smiling and, okay, you obviously have some blind spots. But the reality is that we all have blind spots, don't we? Whether it's theological bents, political, we all have strong held convictions. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when these strong held convictions become hostile actions, like this clan's member, and a hostile attitude that wants to take down and destroy that sees the other, the strangers, as a dangerous person that we must stand up and fight by any means necessary against. We need to recognize that no matter how different the person you're sitting across from or the person that you're reading about, they are made in the image of God. We are all image bearers. We all have God's thumbprint on our face, made into God's image. So we can either be so flexible to hold truth, to hold no truth, or we can be so rigid as to forget grace, the grace that brought us in. Is our deep-rooted skepticism the Lord? Or are we allowing ourselves to see the image of God in others? So imagine Jesus Jesus, who could have per perfectly administered grace and truth. And he did. He sees every individual. He sees every individual. He doesn't say prostitute, I know the type, and avoid them. He doesn't say tax collector, no thank you. I know all about you. 
He defies polarization. Remember in the Gospels when he was asked the polarizing question, to whose does this coin belong? Is it Caesar's or God's? And Jesus evades and he says, give to God what belongs to God and to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He avoids tribalism and polarization. What we see in the Gospel was a king who respected individuals. His ear was open to them who entered into their stories that they may take place in his story. So the main objective today I hope that we can gain from looking at the word of God is that we must move from an attitude of hostility to hospitality. And we do this when we learn to cross boundaries, when we learn to receive from others, like the Cardenas family just mentioned, and when we learn to make space for transformation to happen, instead of trying to pigeonhole someone in a corner. So point one, cross boundaries. The main point of this exposition is that Jesus chooses to cross physical, social, and religious boundaries. The text says in verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. So Jesus was traveling. He's making his way across and the text says he had to pass through Samaria. That's very interesting because he really didn't have to pass through Samaria. Now, the, the Jewish people at that time would, would often pass through Samaria because of convenience. It was a shorter route. But the most religious, the most devoted religious leaders would take the circuitous route around because they don't want to be tainted by the unclean Samaritans. One author says this about the, the political context at the time. He says, after the exile, Jews returned to their homeland and viewed Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted. There was another saying that if one saw a Samaritan walking down the road, you should walk in a ditch if you have to in order that your shadows not even touch. Avoid those unclean people. There's a Pharisee prayer that exposed even more of the hostility, the cultural hostility of the time, and it goes like this. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Jew, but a Gentile. That I'm not a slave, but a free man. That I'm not a woman, but a man. This was the cultural climate that Jesus lived in, and those are the cultural pressures that Jesus experienced as a Jewish religious leader in his time. So to speak, for Jesus to speak with the Samaritan woman was an astonishing break with culture at that time. You see, he saw her. He saw his fingerprint on her. And he went against all of the cultural pressures that he was experiencing. So think about this. Think about the cultural pressures of our time. I mean, for example, you go, go in an elevator and just face everybody, and you'll start to feel cultural pressures. Or more seriously, if you hear a racist joke at work, just would you please kindly not talk about my friends like that? Jesus walked straight into Samaria. The text said he had to go through 
think there's a divine imperative there. He had to go through because that's where God was going. Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And here he is in Samaria. I have to go through. No, that's the route I have to go. See, we often wear our Christianity like a brand new pair of shoes. Okay, so you walk out the door in the morning, and what do you do with your brand new pair of shoes? There's a puddle. Oops. There's a puddle. There's some dirt. I mean, puddles don't happen a lot in Arizona, but you have to imagine here. But we wear our righteousness like brand new pairs of shoes, and we try to avoid and dodge. But Jesus, what does he do with his new Nikes on? He goes straight into it. Because when Jesus touches something unclean, it becomes clean. It becomes beautiful. He transforms hostility into hospitality. He had to pass through. He said, I just have to pass through. There's someone I need to meet today. What was it that pushed him? It was love. I have to go through Samaria. I have to be around people who are different than me. I have to sit down and talk. I have to look them in the eyes. Last year, I was actually noticing my, my own tendency to avoid crossing cultural boundaries. And it happened in my own neighborhood. Because there was this house in our neighborhood in which people were posted up every day in the front yard. They're sitting in the front yard, and it's always different people. About five or six people, they're sitting on the porch stoop. They're, they're out there from early in the a.m. to late at night. We started getting suspicious. And my wife and I are talking, and we're fresh, and we're thinking, what's going on? Is this a, is this a drug house? And then I begin to see the Mormon missionaries reaching out. And I became jealous because they're crossing boundaries in my neighborhood. My neighbors and the Mormons are saying, probably from Florida, they came here and they're reaching out to my neighbors. And I hear them talking. They're, I overhear conversations. Well, how are you doing? How? I remember what you said last week. And I'm hearing it. And I'm like, I'm a pastor. And these guys from Florida know my neighbors better than I do. So I'm fed up one day. I'm like, all right, that's it. I'm about to be a neighbor today. Okay? So I, I get home from work. I pull over my car and I'm, I walk to that house. There's about five new gentlemen there. There's a older woman, and as I approach them, the woman in the back is kind of looking at me suspiciously. And all the young men, I just start doing Pastor Tyson. Okay, I'm going up, I'm shaking hands, I'm smiling. Hey, what's going on, guys? I get everybody's name, and I get their background information. That's not how I intended it, but I think that's how it was received. You'll hear as the story goes on. But I'm shaking hands, I'm talking to people. Where you come from? They're telling me all this information. As they're telling me, the woman is standing in the back looking. suspiciously. The crazy thing is this. So I come home the next day. No one's there. The, the day after that, no one's there. Whatever happened that day, those people moved out of that house and they never returned. I think, I think I busted a drug house in our own neighborhood. <laughs> so I'm encouraging you to do the same. <laughs> So we always don't know how God will act redemptively through our actions or our acts of love and hospitality. In my case, I took a small piece of the neighborhood back. 
I mean, I really, I hope the next time I reach out, we actually form a relationship and friendship when we start talking. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to be the only people living in that neighborhood. But the point is this. When we cross boundaries, God's redemptive purposes go forward. You notice I didn't yell. I left that hostility that I was feeling in my car, the tension I was discussing with my wife. I left that in the car behind, and I went out, and I just approached, crossed the boundary. And I think they felt the love, but I also think they felt the fear of the law. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how easy it is to oppose someone on opposite sides of your fence or here in Phoenix, the opposite side of the cinder block wall? Have you noticed that? But once you cross over, something happens. Something begins to happen in you. So where is the Samaritan border for you? Where are the places right now you're not willing to go? Relationally, politically, maybe it's a, a neighborhood. Maybe it's an ideology. Where are those places? I'm not going there. I won't cross that boundary. I won't put myself in that place because those kind of people are there. Who sits at your dinner table? And why? Are there any people that look different than you, than you that sit at your dinner table? Why? Why not? When we try to avoid defilement by avoiding people in places that are different, we're actually not living in our God-given calling, our vocation. Christ crossed the borders. Christ crossed the boundaries from heaven to earth to come just to be close to you to bring you hope through his own blood. What happened when Christ moved towards you in gentleness? Do you remember that day when he crossed the boundary into your life? Do you remember that? He actually came at you. He came towards you with gentleness. Didn't treat you like an alien and a stranger. There's a hymn that I love, and I feel like it, it speaks to this. It, it says, when I was sinking down, Sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. For my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. In order to move from hostility to hospitality, we must also learn to receive from others. Point of this section is that Jesus was open to receiving from strangers. That goes against all of our stranger danger teaching as young children. But Jesus was open to receiving from strangers. What does that mean? Well, Jesus had this habit of receiving from people who seemed to have nothing to offer to him, people who were very different from him. Do you remember the tax collector, Zacchaeus? Jesus said, we're going to your house today, and I'm going to eat your food. I'm going to receive your hospitality. Zacchaeus was despised by any upright Jewish person, but Jesus said, I'm going to receive from you today, Zacchaeus. I can't wait to see what your hummus tastes like. How about the sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet? Jesus was happy. He was glad to receive her tears on his feet. She had something to offer him, and he counted it very precious. Matter of fact, it says he even bottles your tears. He receives those from you. So 
If we go back to the text, it says that Jesus was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So imagine Jesus is sitting beside the well. It also says that he was very weary. The sixth hour tells us, uh, tells us something important. It tells us at least three important things. That Jesus was hot. Sixth hour meant noon, and we know what noon means in Phoenix in the summer. You don't go hiking at noon. So Jesus was hot. This woman was hiding. And he was thirsty. So Jesus is sitting at this well. He has a legitimate need. He's thirsty in his humanity. He needs water. He's weary. And he says to the woman, give me a drink. You have something to offer me. This imperative may sound a bit rude, but we can tell by the woman's response that she's not offended, but on the opposite. She's actually surprised. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? She's confounded. This man is willing to talk to me? She's thinking, I I come to this well at noon every day, the heat of the day, when other women aren't around, because I'm an outcast. I've been rejected by several men. I don't have many friends. And this Jewish religious leader sits down next to me, and he says, give me a drink. I'm assuming with a smile on his face, give me a drink. The creator of the world, who needs nothing from anyone, asks her for a drink. One commentator says he dignifies her by acknowledging his need and what she could do for him. I think about this, Jesus showing his vulnerabilities to this woman from Samaria. He's being vulnerable. The Lord, the creator. He saw what no one else was seeing in this woman at the time. He saw his very thumbprint on her face. This woman belongs to me. She was made in my image. She's my craftsmanship. So, and notice this is an authentic interaction. Jesus isn't pretending, I I need a cup. He he doesn't have two gallons of milk in in his house, and he goes and knocks on his neighbor's door. Can I have a gallon of milk? He's bringing authentic and vulnerable, his authentic and vulnerable self to this woman. I'm weary, can you give me a drink of water? So missional living, in missional living, we bring our authentic self, our true needs. If your neighbor is an amazing craftsman and they're different than you, let them come help you. It's counterintuitive. We think as Christians, no, we're supposed to go out and help and rescue and save and be strong and be heroes. But we see from Christ, he brought his vulnerability. He said, can you give me a drink? You have something I could really use. There's a Japanese master during the Meiji era, the turn of the 20th century. And he was receiving a professor to come inquire about Zen. Nan-in served tea when the professor came. And he began to pour his visitor's cup. 
But as the cup got full, Nanin just kept pouring. And the professor is watching this, and eventually he, he just can't help but stop. The cup is full. It's overflowing. Can't you see? There's no more room in it. There's no more room. It's overfull. And Nanin says, you are full of your own opinions and speculations. How can I show you something unless you first empty your cup? And astonishingly, Jesus does something like this with the woman. He comes with room in his cup to receive from this woman. A woman who's abandoned and despised. A woman who seemingly has nothing to offer anybody. And Jesus comes with room in his cup. The Messiah has room in his cup. Can you give me a drink? You have something to offer me. He's not a disinterested professor. He doesn't know your type. He's interested in getting to know you. I understand this experience. I, I uh, grew up without a father, and I know what it's like for people to be uninterested. But Jesus is very interested in you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knew your days before you were born. He cherishes you. He loves it when you write prayers to him. When you offer him maybe just a feast of tears. You have something. Jesus is ready to receive from you. Your life. Your all. Your heart your thoughts, your words, your fellowship. So who would you never ask a favor of? Who are the people that you would never ask a favor of? Maybe you just don't like asking favors personally, period. I'm the type that doesn't need, need from others. I give to others. Is this Christ's righteousness in you or self-righteousness? Are there people who might benefit from receiving from you this week? Would you ask for help from your neighbor if you needed help? What if they're radically different than you? So Jesus had a legitimate longing and he shared his vulnerability. And we knew this about the Messiah since the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets spoke of him. Isaiah said, oh, you know what? The king, the Messiah, the one who's going to rescue you, he's going to come as a suffering servant. A suffering servant. In humility, Jesus comes. He crosses boundaries. He's glad to receive from you. He's humble. He's lowly in heart. Are you humble? Are you broken? But Jesus beats you. To it. He's more broken, he's more humble, and he's more willing to receive. You just bring your heart to him. Bring your confessions. Bring your thoughts. Bring your love. Bring your longings. Bring your work. So in order to move from hostility to hospitality, we must learn to receive from others. 
Finally, in order to move from hospitality to, from hostility to hospitality, we must create a space for transformation to happen. What does that mean? Well, the point of this section is that Jesus doesn't force truth, but rather creates a space in which transformation can take place. Look how gentle and lowly our Lord is. Look how he goes about his vocation, transforming hostility into hospitality. He creates room. He's not trying to pigeonhole you and force you to follow him. He's lowly in spirit. He came as a suffering servant. He died to win you. So what is our ultimate hope when, we're, when we realize our hostilities? Our ultimate hope is often, I want to transform this person. I want to change their mind, whether it's our children, our friends, our coworkers, our political opponents. I want to change you. And I'm going to use my hostility spears in order to fix you. Jesus masterfully displays how to be a part of the Spirit's work in transforming another person's heart. One, one author says Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman with gentleness and grace, reveals sin without rejection and condemnation. Did you notice that as he uh, received from her as before? First he receives from her, then she begins asking him questions. and She's ready to receive from him. It's that atmosphere of grace and gentleness. I'll come into your area. I'll receive from you. You have something to give. The table for transformative truth is set when we approach others graciously and gentleness. The table for transformative truth. You want to see coworkers change. You want to see people in your household change. The transformation will happen as you come with gentleness and truth. Receive from your children. Receive from your spouse. Receive from your co-workers. Bring a spirit of gentleness. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to grow in this right now. The Lord's been deeply convicting me this week of how I'm tr constantly trying to change people in my house through intensity, through frustration, through rebuke, through bigger disciplines. It's not the way Christ does. Henry Nouwen says this about hospitality and making room for transformation. He says, hospitality therefore means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them a space where change can take place. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. It's not to lead our neighbor into a corner where there are no alternatives left, but to, op but to open intimidation with good books, good stories, good works, but the liberation of fearful hearts so that words can take root and bear ample fruit. So what are we using right now? Are we creating a space, an atmosphere where transformation can happen? Or are we backing people into a corner, trying to back someone into a corner with our great theology or our great political mind? It's through gentleness and kindness. The word says his, his kindness leads us to repentance. 
also says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we see that displayed so masterfully by Jesus speaking to this woman. There's a, uh, a PBS article about political controversy. And Jeff Greenfield says this about the increasing tension in the political atmosphere in our country over the last several years. He says, the increasingly dark view of the opposition has now become the dominant feature of the American political landscape. Survey after survey has shown that Republicans and Democrats now view each other not simply as wrong, but as malevolent, literally a danger to the republic. So with these polemics, where is the room for transformation? It's okay to have a side, to have a stand, to have a conviction. But how are you asserting that? Spears of, hospital, of hostility? I think it's, it's inspiring to think about Bill Clinton and George Bush Sr. are our friends now. Heard that the Obamas and George Bush Jr. and his family, they're friends now. Somehow they're able to do that, to cross that chasm with all their differences. Have you ever experienced the transformative power of someone's love? Someone who just saw you at your worst and they moved towards you. They crossed your boundaries, all your defenses, your angry face. And not only that, but they moved in it to receive from you. You have precious gifts, valuable gifts I'd love to receive from you. So there's a man who who crossed a boundary of sin to get to you, a chasm of sin that you could never swim across. There's a man who said, I have something to receive from you. Your life, your heart, come and join my family. There's a man who, who didn't forcefully try to get you follow his allegiance, but he, he made a, he brought a kingdom of grace, an atmosphere in which coming to him was beautiful. Christ has come to us like this. He's crossed boundaries. He's willing to receive from you today. He has grace and love. Let's pray.